Hello, and welcome to our podcast series, Close to Home, The Killers Among Us. Today we have myself, Avery, Sarah, and Brenton. So this Studio 151 podcast series involves the coverage and discussion of cases from our host hometown states, including Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Texas. This project will be episodic style as we cover different true crime events or bizarre circumstances that have quite literally occurred close to home. For today's episode, we will be discussing the case of Ella Barham. So some disclaimers before we get into this case, uh, we will be discussing the murder of a young girl. This is a bit of an older case, so some of our details might be a little different, and just this case might sound different from previous ones we've discussed. Uh, But anyways, if you're not comfortable listening to, it it is going to be a a gory, I would say gory case. Uh, If you're not interested in listening to that at the moment, then I would just urge you to Click off the episode now and just take care of yourself and hopefully in the future we'll have a different episode for you that uh, will be more appropriate. So with that said, we will go ahead and start with the general overview of the case. Like said, this is a very old case. It took place in 1912 in Boone County in the rural or Ozarks of northern Arkansas. Um, and our host Brenton is from Arkansas, so... Um, this is uh, his case of choice. Um, so to start out, um, this case involves a young girl, uh, 18 years old, Ella Barham. She's from, she's from Boone County. Um, and we'll just kind of get into kind of like sort of the time, the time uh, flow of what happened. Um, so around 9 a.m. on November 12th or 21st, 1912, Ella Barham left her family home to buy materials to make a hat for her sister. She walked a mile to the village of Pleasant Ridge, which is about 10 miles east of Harrison, the uh, county seat of Boone County, and near the boundary with Marion County. After returning home, Ella mounted a family horse and set out on a journey of about a mile to a neighbor's home where she hoped to get help in making a hat. The neighbor was not able to help Ella, so after visiting for a while, Ella mounted her horse and rode away. It was on her way back around 11 a.m. that she encountered the killer, and her horse was found nearby. And on her short, interrupted journey, she passed the home of Kansas Davidson. So remember that name, because it will become relevant. Um, Ella's family began to worry about her, um, as she didn't come home by the late afternoon. So her brothers um, would would, would soon join others and mount a search for her. Um, but two young boys who were hunting stumbled upon her body, um, which was a horrific sight. Ella's body had been cut into five pieces and lay scattered about. Um, it, in addition to being decapitated, both legs had been cut off and her torso was cut in two. As well as this, her skull was crushed. Um, and after that, there was a manhunt. And we can get more into kind of the details if you want to go. Yeah. Okay. So we're we're going to back up and we're going to talk a little bit about Ella and who she was um, to kind of just provide some context and talk about um, really what this story is about, which is about a young girl. So uh, Lillian Ethel Ella Barham was born on the 16th of February in 1894 in Boone County, Arkansas, to father George Solomon Barham and her mother, Nancy Delilah Dorothea Belvins, but that's her maiden name, so Barham. Um, and so, yeah, Ella lived with her family on their farm in Boone County, which is located in the rural Ozarks of northern Arkansas. Um, I was kind of trying to, like, 
capture where this area was because I'm not from Arkansas and I was a little confused. But essentially, I think what you need to know for this case is that this is a very rural kind of farming community area. Um, the closest city, I believe, was Blythe at the time. Um, but anyway, so in the community, this farming community, uh, the Barham family was highly respected and they were very beloved in their neighborhood. Uh, George himself, he was a prosperous farmer of about 60 years, and Ella's uncle, uh, Elijah Barham of Zinc, he was a merchant and well-known in the community. He had connections with many of the mines in the district. Uh, the family of Ella also made up of, outside of her parents, uh, her four other siblings, Edgar Peel, uh, Gertrude Priscilla, George Dennis, and Ruth Pearl. So essentially, we're kind of trying to capture this image of this I would say medium, moderate size, maybe large family. Um, so Ella had, you know, this older brother, Peel, that was about two years older, and then three younger siblings, Ruth being the youngest. Uh, and around the time that Ella was murdered, when she was 18 years old, Ruth would have been about 11. Uh, Ella herself was a favorite in the community. Multiple sources describe her notable beauty. She was kind of like the Southern Belle type beauty from what I've gathered in my research. Uh, she had a very cheerful and lively deposition. Uh, and she was described numerous times as spirited. And she was just this promising young lady. And she really attracted lots of people because of that upbeat nature. Uh, and as one can imagine, these attributes also attracted a lot of suitors, a lot of boys. And concerning this, she was also pretty well known. Uh, and popular. And I'll return with some more details about her romantic life. Uh, but in her free time, um, Ella enjoyed the company of her family and friends. Uh, she enjoyed reading and she also was fond of beautiful flowers. Um, and so interesting, just because this case is so old, a lot of our evidence, especially in gaining like a glimpse into the life of Ella in this community is through actual like historical records, like uh, legal transcripts and documents, and then also some physical evidence uh, and items that have been inherited by later descendants of the Barham family. And so Nita, <laughs> I didn't think about how to pronounce her name. Nita... I think it's Gold. Gold? Think, yeah. Okay. Nita Gold. So we'll, we'll come to talk about her a lot later, but she is a descendant of Ella. She actually inherited a, a tin box that had belonged to Ella. And like, we know that during this time that these little tin boxes were just used to really hold any kind of possessions you might have, but especially letters and postcards. So that's actually a, a, where a lot of our evidence come from is that inside this tin box uh, was just a compilation of letters and postcards um, that had been sent to Ella from the time she was 15 years old up until her death. Uh, uh, the letters detailed various kind of like entertainment and social customs at the time. Uh, I, I read pie suppers. I am not entirely sure what that means. Maybe we're having a pie get together. I don't know. Um, but spelling bees, church gatherings, dances, picnics and parties, just all these social events. She had a very active social life. Um, she was evidently very popular and engaged in community events. Uh, she also may have been a bit flirtatious from what I was researching. Uh, this was captured in numerous letters from young men who would pursue her. Sometimes they didn't even know her personally, which was kind of shocking to me. Sometimes they would just be like, you know, I've heard of you. And they would write to her kind of like expressing interest to maybe like take her out for a date or just meet her. Um, and again, uh, bringing up Nita Gold. Uh, so she has a whole book written on this case, uh, which I'll bring her up again later. Uh, so if you want to know more details about Ella's romantic life, because the kind of this idea of like a courting society is kind of interesting. But yeah, I'd recommend maybe looking into her book. Um, 
But back to the narrative, at the time she was killed, um, Ella was actually engaged to be married to a man named Cam Edmondson. And so his letters differed greatly from kind of the other suitors of Ella. He was more straightforward in his interests. He wasn't trying to flatter her, be super flirtatious. He was just kind of, you know, are you interested or not? Um, And so this may have been something that attracted her to him because he stood out, you know, among other suitors in that way. So weird using the term suitor, but <laughs> that's what you come a lot, uh, come across a lot in these older sources as suitors. Um, but yeah, so now we're on to the day of the murder. So it was Thursday, November 21st, 1912. It was a late autumn morning. She got up, had breakfast with her family, and then she began walking to a nearby post office and general store in the nearby town called Pleasant Ridge. Uh, this trip doubled also as a chance to buy materials to make a hat for her sister. And I could not find which sister it was, but she does have, it's one of the two younger sisters, uh, Ruth Pearl or uh, Gertrude, who I believe went by Gertie. Um, but anyway, so after she returned home, uh, she went out pretty soon again. Uh, she took her brother's horse named Nellie and she rode to a neighbor's house that was maybe about a mile or so away. Uh, she wanted help with making the hat. Um, unfortunately the neighbor could not help her, so she decided to return home. And so something to point out about the route to her neighbor's house is that while she was riding, uh, she would have passed through this or passed by this cemetery. And so there was the cemetery and then on the west side of it was this big ravine and so she would have been riding kind of like on the edge between the river and the cemetery line um, and on this route there was a big fallen treetop that someone seemed to have cut down and rolled out of the way so this is just kind of like an odd detail that might be um, important for discussion later um, also on this route Ella would have passed by the Davidson's house which Sarah mentioned over Otis Davidson. Um, So on her way to the neighbor's house, the one that helped her with the hat, she actually stopped by the Davidson's home real quick. Um, You know, they were neighbors. They were friends. Everyone in this community knew each other. So, you know, she probably didn't even get off her horse. It was just kind of like a quick greeting. And then she continued on. But on her way back to her home, uh, she would pass the Davidson's house again. But from that point on, she would not be seen again. Um, So it is believed that she may have encountered her killer about 11 a.m. on her way back, uh, and she would be missing for about nine or ten hours. Uh, search parties were formed, and in the afternoon, uh, her horse, Nellie, or her brother's horse, actually returned home. It was riderless, dragging the bridle. Um, you know, the family, the family's first impression was that maybe her and Harrison, oh, oh, that she had eloped to Harrison. Sorry, um, and. They were kind of just waiting around to see if they would get word from her. They didn't assume um, that it would be anything worse than that. But when night came and there was still no word, they started to get more alarmed. um, And there was a lot of questions. And so they wanted to start trying to locate her. So that's when they send all these search parties out. But it just seemed as if she had disappeared. Uh, But we will discover that the reality was a lot worse. So to describe more of this setting in this community uh, because it's part of what makes the case so complicated and murky is that uh, it's not only that we have kind of like this dated evidence which is a little harder to look at and discuss compared to 21st century where people are literally just caught on camera buying murder equipment at Walmart so uh, you know it's a little more confusing in this kind of case but uh, the community is an integral part Uh, it was a small southern rural farming community in the early 20th century so a lot of these families were really interconnected and knew each other well 
Uh, so, you know, it's this little area of Arkansas. Uh, they'd all been living in this tiny part of Boone County. They grew up together. A lot of them married into each other's families. And this kind of just shows all the interpersonal relationships that is going on in the town. Uh, it kind of reminds me a lot about, honestly, what we've talked with all of our cases so far, um, the Girl Scout murders and um, our last case with Darlie Rudier is that the community is always reflects like a big part of the case because they will kind of determine at times how the trial goes. They have a lot of influence. Um, yeah. And this case was like really sensationalized. It was um, widely reported in newspapers and a lot of the reports were kind of inaccurate. Yeah. So it was kind of it got a lot of people kind of aware of the case and a little bit up in arms about it. Exactly. Um, yeah. And so. the, the Barhams and the Davidsons, like they were both pretty well-known families um, and they didn't even live that far apart. Uh, like I said, in between them is the creek and also that cemetery, which is also called Davidson Cemetery. I don't know if there's any relation yeah. there, um, but also more to just describe this kind of setting. So the Ozarks is it's very hilly. It's very hilly terrain. Um and there wasn't really roads. It was more like trails, which kind of makes sense. You know, we have Ella just on her horse, <laughs> which is that's that's kind of cool to imagine. Um, and so, yeah, you know, you I, that's the form of transportation they used. Wagon horses or on foot. Uh, there was no cars in the area, no real roads. Uh, it seems unlikely that anyone would be riding bicycles. I mean, they existed, but it's this woodsy, like rough terrain area. Um, and it was it was still populated, just probably not as populated as we would think in terms of a modern day rural town. It was smaller than that. But for the time, like there, there are people living here. It is an active community. Um, but like I said, both the Barhams and the Davidson's families were prosperous and well respected. Um, and so now to talk a little bit about the community's reaction to uh, Ella's death and murder. So. First of all, the the mother, of course, like this was very hard for her, um, as one can imagine, especially because of how severe Ella's injuries were, especially um, hogs had actually started to eat away at her nose and part of her cheeks because her body had just been, you know, discarded um, and left uh, vulnerable to the elements, essentially. Uh, but there are, uh, Nita Gold actually talks about uh, inheriting Ellis things that she found a lot of letters that were sent to the mother from just friends and family, people in the community uh, offering her their sympathy and compassion uh, for the mother, those sorts of things. Um, so we do know that, you know, people cared about Ella. They noticed she was missing. This was a big deal. Um, you know, in with her considering her fate, like they believed she was dragged off her horse and then butchered in this horrible way so th this was super big and so like sarah said we kind of start having this mob mentality and so from my research it said about 500 armed men like were searching for her uh all over the woods all over this area uh this kind of and it, it seemed as if they they were so passionate about about this crime and about ella that um they were kind of worried that they would just kind of seek someone like almost like a scapegoat and just immediately take action. Uh, so that was kind of a concern. Um, her body was eventually found, I believe, by a party of fox hunters. Mm -hmm. um, I think they were attracted to the site because of their their bloodhounds, their dogs, you know, they were barking. Um, and so, 
yeah, I think that's a that's a bit all I have to go over that section. Also, just once again, because this case is so intertwined with the community, we'll later see in like the actual trial that it was very problematic. A lot of the jurors had to be replaced because of their connection to the Davidsons, who are an integral part of this murder. Um, and so just to go back to Nita Gold a little bit. So she is a relative, a descendant of Ella Barham, um, their first cousins twice removed. And she's also just a lover of Ozark history. That uh, so she, she says so. Uh, Isn't she from Tulsa? Yeah. So yeah, I did which see is that. this is interesting because so yeah, it said I wrote it down. She is a senior analyst for a Tulsa-based pipeline transportation company. So she does work in Tulsa. Uh, she also um, her academic background. She majored in accounting. So Sarah also oh. is an accountant major <laughs> um, in college and. So yeah, she's she's very she's a very intelligent, educated woman. So if you do want to go read her book, it's called Remembering Ella, a 1912 Murder and Mystery in the Arkansas Ozark. So uh, it's really interesting, you know, to read up and like discover these details that even we don't know because we didn't read this entire book um, for our research. But uh, yeah, and also if anyone's interested in kind of some history of Arkansas and what like the social, um, cultural as well as like judicial system was like there, um, but. Outside of that, she herself hasn't or refuses to form an official opinion on whether or not she believes Otis Davidson was guilty for this murder because she just wanted to present the information in a factual, objective way in her book without influencing uh, with her opinion. So we're not entirely sure where she stands um, when it comes to that. But outside of that, uh, yeah, she just she felt that she wanted to write the book. Uh, she thought it was healing for her and also the community because this was just so such a d- tragedy. Um, and also because, as said, the community was so connected. This was so shocking. A lot of people did not want to believe it, but a lot of people did. Um, but yeah, and to this day, a lot of people in that area are still familiar with this crime. Um, but outside of that, we can move on to Brenton. He's going to talk a little bit more about David or David. Otis and, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. So before I, uh, touch into it, um, we, we've been discussing about Nita Gold, and uh, if if you basically want, like, a, a Sparknote version of the book, uh, there is a, we'll call it, like, a podcast uh, on the YouTube channel, Most Notorious. Uh, it was, like, an hour, a little over an hour, uh, where him and Nita, uh, like, discuss, like, everything. It's, like, chopped up into, like, certain bits, so if you wanted to learn maybe about her, uh, you can skip to that part, or if you wanted to learn about Otis and his connection with a uh, with Ella, then you can definitely do that. So just, I guess, a quick plug, um, because this is where a lot of the information I gathered from it, because she went into, like, a lot of details. So about Otis, uh, he was born on January 22nd, 1883 in Boone, Arkansas, to Nancy Jane Killebrew and Kansas. He went by Kent Monroe Davidson. So kind of like the Barhams, uh, the Davidsons were also really well-respected and known throughout the community. Uh, Kansas, his dad uh, was the justice of the peace, which was like a judicial officer in Boone County. And his also his grandfather also served in the local government. So uh, with that, they were also very well off financially. You know, they owned 100 acres of land in the Ozark farm region. Uh, she noted in that uh, little podcast that uh, about only 18, according to her like documents and stuff, only 18 people had that many acres of land. So they were very well off financially. Uh, they were well known. Uh, they had a place within that community. Uh, so uh, he was 29 years old in 1912 as he was born in 80, 1883, uh, the year of the murder. 
Uh, he was also living with his uh, family, his, his siblings and his parents, uh, which she noted that, you know, obviously he was almost 30 years old. He wasn't married, which like even to this day, a lot of people probably uh, confuse that. You know, they're like, wow, your peers, your other like your other friends are in their 20s and already married, especially back then. You know, some even got married when they were teenagers. Uh, so that was perceived as odd. Uh, he kept to himself, you know, he was quiet, uh, he was very reserved, but noted as someone who took his young, younger siblings and the uh, younger children in the community kind of like under his wing. So at least he had that kind of like influence. Uh, he was highly educated, uh, and I kind of put that with asterisks because, you know, um, because his family uh, was prominent, they were well off, he could afford to like uh, go to school and stuff like that. But I'm just going to say for the area, he was very highly educated. Uh, he was noted he played the violin. He A report I saw is that he loved to play with this instrument. He was trying to, like, pursue that uh, further. And she also said that he hunted for score with, like, his family and stuff. So, of course, this story, um, I just wanted to highlight him as a person. But now uh, I think we can get into, like, the evidence against him or if he is the murderer or not. Uh, so the first thing that I well, that we noted is that uh, – when they went to uh, their house to like basically ask like where is he at like we need to like question him and stuff like that like see anything with his involvement uh, a handprint was seen in his upstairs bedroom window uh, with a pair of socks that contained red pepper flakes and we, uh, um, before we started we kind of like talked about like what these red paper red red pe pepper flakes like had anything to do with it um, but. Uh, I think the biggest thing, especially because I like had looked at it, uh, even to this day, like that is like a big way to like because uh, they were trying to bring in bloodhounds, like dogs that like could uh, sniff like possibly where she was at, like any like any paths to the uh, to where she could be. Uh, and that's kind of just a way to like uh, skew their senses to like kind of stop that from uh, being said. And uh I think also a key piece of evidence uh, is that an axe bearing dried blood soon surfaced on their farm, uh, which that, that could also be a, a part of that. And I think the biggest thing that I had heard from the podcast and like that we kind of like kind of had touched earlier is that uh, two years before the trial, uh, Otis had tried to like like Avery had said that she had a lot of suitors. And he was one of them because, like, they were obviously neighbors, basically. They, like, had all this time together. But he's a lot older. Uh, she tried to uh, – he tried to court her. You know, like, there was, like, a dance that uh, Nita had, like, talked about. And uh, he tried to, like, say, hey, like, can I take you home? And she just was like, no, I'm, I'm okay on that. And he threatened to – like, threatened, uh, threatened her. And uh, she had told her sister and her sister told uh, their father – and that's why I think the biggest uh, reason why they think he did is because he had threatened her uh, prior to this. And he never testified in his own defense, and he was found guilty and sentenced to hang. But before we get all into that, uh, one last thing that I want to note, or last two things, is that he was made to press his feet into flower into a flower bed, which Sarah wants to call it flower feet. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, uh, so uh, that he, basically they can get like his footprint uh, to see if uh, it like measured with it. And although it didn't match, they were basically like, well, it doesn't match. But if he was like going to carry her, you know, like it basically the weight of her and him, uh, it would like obviously make a bigger impression into the into the flower. 
and that's uh, why they're like that's like their biggest defense. And also, uh, something the last thing I want to highlight is that he was cutting wood in the vicinity of Killebrew on that day, and the spot where he was working was near the route uh, traveled uh, by Ella. So basically, just trying to like put him in a position um, where he was earlier in that day where he could have been and such. So. That was the last thing I wanted to note about Otis, and I we have a few things that we want to talk about for sure. So, yeah, this I don't even know where to start. This case has a lot of weird things going on, and I think because it's such an older case, and there's just not a lot of other research out there outside of Nita Gold's account, uh, it's kind of hard to say for sure because we weren't there and we're so disconnected from this case. But it is strange. It is strange that. He was, you know, apparently outside the same day she was killed, uh, cutting trees. And then as mentioned in my account of the victim is that whenever she was going to the neighbor's house, uh, her route, she would have passed by that same tree. And so I just think that's interesting. Um, and then also with the red pepper flakes, that's, I didn't, did y'all know that, that it could affect bloodhound smell? When uh, I, yeah. When, when I read about it, but. Yeah, because I also, like, I typed that on Google, like, red pepper flakes, like, and, and like, bloodhounds. Like, I, obviously, he's going to call not call them bloodhounds, but, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was, like, in using, like, a lot of different other cases, like, more recent um, to where they're, like, was this actually used on purpose to skew their, like, senses and stuff? So, it's crazy even back yeah. in the early 1900s that, like, something like this is as prominent. It's also interesting how quickly the police reacted uh, to this case because, essentially, they found... Ella's body and then the following day they already issued a warrant of arrest for Otis which is why they show up at his house um and so they're most likely with the the dogs probably trying to intimidate because they are going to bring him into custody and go ahead and arrest him but also maybe to see if they could sniff out evidence on the property which you said they found an axe so uh yeah I don't know that I I find hmm. yeah it's, <laughs> it's really interesting it did move yeah. very quickly um and I think some of the reason why they used bloodhounds initially was because they believed it had to be somebody from out of town. At least uh, Sheriff Helm did. Um, and so he, they were kind of like bringing the bloodhounds along the train tracks to kind of see if they could like catch a scent of somebody trying to basically book it out of town after doing this. Um, but I think I think I read somewhere that. Otis was there when they made this announcement that they were going to be using the bloodhounds. Mm -hmm. So that could have been why he had, he knew to put that in his socks. You know what I mean? Um, So, but yeah, crazy. (laughs) He was also um, a part of the search party, interesting enough, Mm -hmm. that was organized in the afternoon after Ella did not return. Um, And I believe, I believe they brought, um, dogs with them as well yeah. for the search party. I, th- I, think, um, I think, so. think they actually had to like borrow some. I don't know if it was from another county or just another uh, police station. Or I, I think I read that. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, they did find her. Um, I think around midnight. So they found her near uh, in a kind of dark w- woodlands area. Uh, they found her near an old mine shaft, mm-hmm. uh, and that her her body was also partially buried under a pile of rocks. But uh, the the footprints and the what are we calling it flower, 
flower feet. Okay. Um, the yeah, flower feet thing. Like that, uh. <laughs> so kind of the relevance there is that um, they, the police believed that there was, okay, they, this was kind of their outline of what they thought would what's happened is that she was riding on her horse and she was pulled off the horse um, and dragged to the fallen tree top that we keep bringing up. And that's where her head and legs were cut off. And then they saw footprints that kind of indicated that the murderer had took, picked her up. So we did talk about that and took her across the banks of Crooked Creek. Uh, and so it is assumed that the murderer would have taken off his shoes so that he can wade through the small stream. And so that's where those footprints are. And uh, like Brenton said, uh, because he is holding, you know, a body and in kind of like a wet, marshy area, you would imagine that the feet would sink. And so the footprints would be a little larger. Um, also, I guess it would depend on whether he actually took his shoes off or not. I'm not sure, like, what evidence they had that made them think his the shoes weren't on. I think Maybe it's because... It was the print. Yeah, they looked like it was, like, It feet. looked like feet. Not... not, <laughs> not yeah. yeah. Um, um. <laughs> but as well as that, I think it, it was crazy how quickly they kind of implicated him. But um, there were... I think it was about, like... 20 people that testified uh i think maybe like really soon after it happened kind of and otis actually i think was one of those people that testified um and from those testimonies um that's kind of how he was implicated um i'm not entirely sure exactly what was said they might have been they might have like kind of revealed what you guys had talked about how um he had had that kind of interaction with her two years prior. That could have been what implicated him mm. in that in those testimonies. It's it's really interesting because like we're talking about that this spread like wildfire. This all happened very quickly. Um, we do know that uh, whenever everything was first found out that hundreds of people were swarming the community and newspapers reporters were spreading the story from coast to coast and a lot of the reports were inaccurate, which I think just kind of goes along with a lot of the controversy. There's a lot of people that don't think Otis Davidson was the killer. And uh, I don't know. Did we mention that he was executed? Um, so he, yeah. would, he would be found guilty and he yeah. was executed. I think he was actually one of the last people to yeah, be executed. He was the very last person. By hanging. Yeah, specifically. by hanging. And they switched yeah. to electrocution after that. Yeah. And so I, I think why this case is so uh, sensationalized or like just mm-hmm. really fixated on is because of the speed in which it moved and also because it ended with the death of um, the suspect that a lot of people don't are yeah. convinced that he was a lot of people actually thought it was just some crazy madman um i'm not sure what evidence there is for that but uh, like Brenton said that they maybe thought it was or whoever said it <laughs> that it was someone that was out of town um i you know i mean i would just imagine like growing up in a tight-knit community like that it would be hard to look at a neighbor and say oh you know i think they're capable of that because mm-hmm. you've Growing up with these people, you see them around at the dance, at the little church activities, all of that. Yeah, especially because they're both so prominent. Like, you don't want to, you know, you want to think, like, oh, it was just somebody from out of town yeah. that, like, wants to disturb our town. Like, no, it was someone within your community mm-hmm. that was very prominent. Yeah, and if, I don't know if you guys want to talk about the hanging a little bit, because I did find some things about that. And we did mention that this case was very very reported for the time which you know we're talking 1912 we don't have like the kind of access to information that we do today um back then so um it was his hanging was 
very well attended, apparently, reportedly numbered in the thousands. And also it was very quick after um, after the murder even happened. So the murder happened November 21st of 1912, and he was hung on August 11th of 1913. So that is not even a year afterwards, which is crazy because nowadays whenever people are on death row, they can be on death row for like years yeah and especially it probably could even happen sooner but there was quite a few delays within it you know because uh like a lot of defendants had to Mm -hmm. like weren't there or you know such like that but yeah still quite a big turnaround yeah it was yeah fast compared to today um and what happened is he was he was hanged inside an enclosed scaffold so i'm guessing this means he wasn't visible to people um and he still declared his innocence and after after it was done apparently the rope that was used to hang him was cut into pieces and tossed into the rowdy crowd which is crazy to think about like thousands of people just like kind of it just seems a little i don't know that just doesn't sit right uh you know even even if he did something like this it just is like oddly bloodthirsty so there is it does call into question like was it just like the mob wanted like vengeance or some some sort of like um kind of atonement for what happened to her so there was definitely like this is a mob frenzy case uh mob violence was very high uh the harrison gel um was actually the the sheriff home was actually concerned about the Harris shell holding uh I guess it says two Davidson brothers so I guess two of them yeah his were arrested. yeah his brother they thought him to be an accomplice was he convicted of that no um Interesting. yeah he was I think let go yeah, yeah so when they were first arrested and they were just in the harrison jail uh which it, it was a pretty small jail it wasn't in the best condition but they they were really worried about their safety because of threats of mob violence and so they actually had them moved in secret to um a nearby uh it says berryville jail which is in carroll county so that was for their safety um and, and like I said, because this uh, case is so connected with the community that they had issues with a lot of the jurors um, having relationships with Davidson and how that would affect the outcome of the case. Um, and while, while I, I see all the confounding variables, like there's a lot going on here. I mean, some of the evidence just really speaks for itself to me. Um, I think at a first glance, I wanted to say a lot of this seems circumstantial, but to me, finding what they believe to be the murder weapon and no they can't do dna testing so there's no way to actually know that for sure but if you're finding a bloody axe you know with someone's blood on it um on your property that's a you know and you don't have an explanation for it that's a pretty telltale sign especially because we know that there was a tree that was cut down so probably going to use an axe um yeah. and then soon after ella was found uh just with her body dismembered uh you know and uh according to the uh, autopsy report by uh dr george washington taylor uh he he determined that barham had been raped and died and that the uh her death was the result of massive trauma to her head that her skull was and this is a quote smashed to smithereens and he thought that uh the thought the killer had used a sharp-edged instrument such as an axe to cut up the body Mm -hmm. so there is autopsy reports kind of confirming uh that the murder weapon well dismemberment weapon was an axe so yeah and um kind of after all of this went down um and otis was hung his family uh they moved i think it was to tahlequah which is in oklahoma um 
And it, I think I read somewhere that they were kind of like scared out of Boone County by um, people who kind of threatened them or like, you better get out of here or, or else essentially. Um, and yeah, there was, you know, it was a lot of just, just local like uproar about the entire thing, even, even towards the family. So, you know, kind of, it's, it's kind of interesting how much that affected the it, case. It really is, especially because it's a respected family, right? Yet we're not seeing the same patterns that we saw in the previous cases where it's the community rises up to defend the killer because they're like, no, I know this person. Like, I can't imagine him doing that. So that kind of bias of knowing that person, you're like, I just can't imagine them doing this. No, like this community entire for the it seems that all of the community really thought he did it. Um, so I don't know where this like problematic element comes in with the case. Maybe just um, maybe this is modern interpreters thinking, OK, well, did they really find enough evidence or was this just mob violence? Um, but in the time, it really seems that the whole community thought he did it. I didn't see any sources that defended him. Um, and I don't know about y'all, but I couldn't really find anything about um, his dad, who was the uh, right, the former judge. Um, Kansas Monroe Davidson mm. uh, I couldn't find anything about him what he thought about it because um, that's his son you know yeah yeah me neither um, yeah it's there is not a lot of kind of um, evidence for taking his side or kind of talking about um, his family and how they reacted to that um, so kind of it's kind of just Who, you know, we're, we're yeah. kind of, we're, we're restricted to what we can find, you know, since it was such an old case. Um, I, I would imagine whoever did do it, whether it's um, Otis Davidson or some supposed madman from out of town, uh, you can see that I, I feel this crime has a lot of either psych... I was going to say, I, I feel like it's either very passionate, like it could be personal because that's just such a gruesome way to kill someone. Um, or it could just be someone that is truly crazy. So I can kind of see why there's this, you know, uh, back and forth between, well, was it some like mysterious crazy person? Because it, it does seem just very like bizarre and inhumane to kill someone and then dismember their body in that way. Yeah. But at the same time, to me, that could strike it as like this was a personal killing, you know, like a revenge killing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, especially at this point testimony of like him threatening her because he didn't get his advances you know re reciprocated kind of like thing. yeah like. and also um to note just to just to go back to kind of like the evidence that we have found um to keep in mind all of this evidence most of what the sources that i think we all found were from like the research of her ancestor so that could be that could have some type of correlation as to why we're not really seeing a lot about him and his family and support for his That's family. Fair. I will see, say Nita Gold, she does claim that she's trying to be unbiased and present it in a factual information, but I think the bias that like is non-negotiable is the fact that her evidence seems to be mostly from what she's inherited. Yeah. And then some of her evidence, I think, is also like the court documents and transcripts. But I don't believe she's well, I, I can't say this for sure, uh, but I don't think that she's working with any like evidence from the Davidson family. You know, she's pulling a lot from yeah. the Barhams and then from the community. And we know the community didn't like him. So, I mean, I wonder how um, our perception of this case would change if we knew more about like the Davidson's uh 
side of the family, what they're saying, maybe what evidence they've collected. Yeah, definitely. That's that's how that's how I was thinking of it. It's kind of like more evidence, like kind of like on their side, maybe would have needed to be Mm -hmm. um, presented. There was I know there was one um, part where um, they they appealed uh, Otis's uh, sentence. I think it was a couple times and because they said that his rights had been violated because as you said, they moved Otis um, whenever, like whenever he was being held in the cell Mm -hmm. because they believed that it wasn't safe and that the mob was going to get in and um, get him. I think he also appealed because of the fact that so many of the jurors were from the community. Mm -hmm. They wanted to replace them with jurors from outside the community um, because they assumed that there was a bias going on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, as well as that, uh, there was they stated that um, his constitutional rights had been violated because he was not in the courtroom when the jury rendered its verdict. Oh. Thus, he had been denied due process of law. So, you know, since he was moved and wasn't physically there, mm-hmm. it calls into question, like, were his rights violated? So there were there were some things about this case that are kind of, you know, Yeah. And to talk a little more about the trial, some of the information I have is that he was originally represented by um, E.G. Mitchell and B.B. Hudgens. uh, And Hudgens uh, would later withdraw from the case, whereas Mitchell um, allegedly he put on a pretty spectacular um, argument or defense for his client. Um, There was actually times during the trial where uh, he was found in contempt or warned he had to pay a twenty five dollar fee. And... Apparently, he, uh, this one witness, I don't know what witness, but it says an unfavorable witness that he treated this witness particularly harshly during his questioning. Um, But we do know the trial lasted only six days. So like we said, this case moved very fast and it was a verdict guilty, a verdict of guilty. Yeah, sorry. (laughs) I was like, what am I saying? Um, But yeah, and so it says Attorney Mitchell filed a motion for a new trial, but it was denied and... After some delays, uh, he finally paid the supreme penalty, um, August 11th, 1913. So I believe that's when he was hung. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. To me, just thinking about the case overall, um, I if this was the work of some madman, so if this wasn't Otis Davidson, why there there was there's no clear motive, you know, for some crazy person to just come and kill her. So it would kind of be, I would assume, just just some psychopathic murderer. And to me, that that seems like you would commit that offense again. So if this was really just some crazy madman, I would imagine that they you would see other crimes like this, maybe not in that community, but in the area, because I don't feel normal people go out and randomly commit crimes like this without a motive. And so if it was just some crazy person, I would imagine that they would have found similar uh, murders popping up in the area. So I don't know. To me, that, that yeah. explanation is kind of weak. Yeah. And she also did have like a lot of suitors that you because I think you mentioned about how she had a lot of letters from people she didn't even know who were like trying to I guess court her. Um <laughs> yeah. so it could have it could have been from something like that maybe, you know, kind of just thinking of like other other things that it could have been. I I don't know. It just seems like she had a lot of um a lot of people interested in her, even people who didn't really know her. So Yeah, and maybe to create a motive if it could be one of those people that didn't even know her, she was set to be married to somebody, you know, like they could have heard about that and just been mad that it wasn't me like it, it's just this guy so man 
Yeah, definitely. I just I, I think just because like they didn't have DNA evidence and that's just such an integral part of like crime nowadays. Um, just concrete, non evidence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like a lot of just like concrete evidence. It's just those it's it's hard it's hard to say for sure because, you know, we're it's a lot of just like, oh, they found the axe here and oh, he got rejected by her type of thing. So it's not really too concrete. Plus, but there's so many pieces that yeah. kind of time there. And then the other alternatives they're coming up with don't make sense. And I'm going to give them the benefit of doubt and assume that the police the, uh, department looked into the other, you know, these admirers or whatever. I would assume they would look into that. No? So I don't know. Um the madman theory, I, I wonder who was really thinking that. Was that something that was more of conjured up by the Davidsons um, to defend their son? Um, I think at the beginning, yeah. they didn't want to think it was somebody in their mm-hmm. town. So they were kind of looking along the train tracks to see if somebody was trying to skip town um, after mm-hmm. doing this. But I, I think that's probably where that theory came from. But we're just kind of throwing things out there just to see, you know, what if, you know... Because cause the, the evidence is a little bit circumstantial, though I do still kind of feel like it d- does point towards him. But, you know, just um, kind of like evaluating other things that could have happened. Yeah, I, I think in this case, um, something to definitely un- underscore is the fact that she was raped. So this wasn't just a violent crime. This wasn't just a murder. There was a sexual motive in this. And so if... It was Davidson. We do know that he had expressed prior interest in her. Um, and if it wasn't him and it was some madman, once again, I feel like this would have been a repeated offender. I feel like you would have seen other patterns of this. Um, and from my research, I just wasn't seeing that. Mm. So, yeah, I don't know. This this had to be personal to some extent. Um because if not, that type of murder to me is very textbook serial. Like you're going to kill in this, that same way again. Um, I kind of wonder if it was kind of just this frenzied killing or if it was planned. Because um, if we are just assuming for, I mean, he was convicted. If we're, if we're, we're saying it's Otis, um, you know, someone cut down a tree uh, and they believe that that is where her body was thrown across to cut off, hack off her limbs. Uh, you know, that it, you know, was the cutting down of a tree a thing that was thought of before or after having killed her? Um, that's something that's on my mind because from my research, it said when she was going to that neighbor's house to get help with the hat that it was already, or or it just said that she probably would have seen it. So it's kind of implied that that tree had already been cut down because then to me, that makes it more of a premeditated murder. If that tree was already cut down to be prepped for her murder versus, you know, the tree being cut down after. Hmm. I don't know. There's, there's a lot to be asked, but since it's (laughs) such an old case, it's kind of... You know, the type of thing that's probably not going to be answered. But Yeah, no. I mean, this is a sad one, but this is not something we haven't heard of before. Like, these horrible acts of violence, especially sexual violence against women. Yeah. I'd say this is out of the one... I mean, the Girl Scout murders, that that was very horrific. horrific. It, but the, I, this one, in a way, like, she was... Her body was chopped yeah. apart. That's... That's would you say like five different? Yeah, they cut off her legs and her. She was decapitated. That's crazy. I would say that is like the act of somebody that's insane. Um, 
So and her body wasn't hidden very well. So again, it's so weird. There's conflicting evidence or ideas that this was premeditated versus not because her body was so poorly hidden. It was yeah. just kind of dumped, so you know, by odd. the mines. There were some rocks thrown on top of her. Um, it almost to me seems like whoever did this just really wanted to kill her in that moment so maybe they did prep it maybe they did cut that tree down but they didn't really think too much about the afterwards part the cleanup because it's it's very it's a very poor job you know whoever was doing this had to know that her body was going to be found especially in a small town like that yeah it's it's so weird it it almost makes you think like could it have could it have been that like someone tried to pin it on somebody else try to pin it on otis you know i don't know that's like there's not really that much concrete, so it's kind of out there. To me, it I, I really am convinced. I personally do think that Otis did it. That's just my personal conviction, uh, mainly because of there was so many witnesses that were going against him. And then also the fact that the the what they think was the murder weapon was found on his property with blood on it. And that answers a lot for me of questions, such as why was the tree cut down? Um, So that ax could have been used to cut down the tree as well as um, dismember her body. So, Yeah. But do we know for sure it was their ax? I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm just like thinking too too deep into it. But you know, there's I I'm not saying that I'm like oh he didn't do it, but it's 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 hard to say. It's just very mysterious. Yeah, there's a lot of like kind of elusive elements to it. Yeah. Do you have you guys have any more thoughts or? Uh, I I saw this yesterday, um, but I was trying to like find it, but I think I found it um, on Otis's grave like stone uh his sister had written on the gravestone like obviously it has like his name his birthday and like when he died uh but the text under it uh that his sister wrote was his life taken on august 11 1913 by misrepresentations born of excitement wow yeah you know and once again it was a pretty frenzied mob um but from our research he also had a pretty good lawyer so i don't know Mm. Yeah, I just, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, we weren't there to evaluate the lawyer, yeah, but yeah. <laughs> from what it says is that, you know, he was fighting pretty passionately uh, for his uh, client. I kind of wonder, because there was two lawyers originally, right? I kind of wonder why the other one withdrew I from the I read about it. I think he was oh, having, like, like, um, Ill, yeah, like, health problems. Health problems yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think from working the case, because it was so disturbing, or just, like, maybe just phys- been physical re- health? Physical health problems. Okay. Yeah. It, it It's... It's a very disturbing case. Um, I'm not from this area of Arkansas, so I don't know if this is one of the most shocking things or, like, maybe this was the first shocking thing to happen in that community to this extent. Because I know when we talked about uh, our last case, Darlie Rudier, like, that was one of the most shocking things to happen in Rowlett. Uh, I don't know. Do you know? <laughs> uh, no, and I, I hadn't heard about it because I guess I can give my, like, to end it off. Um like, obviously, I was looking at different cases. Uh, I even asked my mom, like, what like, what's the most shocking? And she didn't even know about this one. But I just thought, you know, might as well switch it up, you know, bring one that's, like, really old and stuff. But when you start digging into it and you find oh, yeah. out how she died, like, she just didn't just get murdered. She was decapitated and stuff. Um, but, yeah, cause like, especially having family from that area, like you mentioned, Berryville, that's where most of my dad's side of the family's from. Like, I would assume it's probably one of the most, like, crazy ones if not one of the biggest stepping you know ones that is most notable 
yeah it says it still like impacts the community today like this is something they still think about so that was pretty that was surprising um especially because for my case i don't think i don't think many relic people know about that unless maybe they live near uh wherever darley rudier and her husband and her children were living at uh but yeah i mean i i think that's all we have for this mm -hmm. case right guys pretty much yeah yeah um but we'll, we'll be excited to discuss more cases in the future. Um, I don't know if y'all been looking into more cases for your estates, but for Texas, just some things to look forward to, to those listening. Um, I would like to go over the or, uh, origin story of the Amber Alert, um, because that actually took place in Texas. Um, it was, uh, this case was kind of what led to the development of the Amber Alert system. Um, so I, I, I am kind of wanting to cover some pretty like influential cases in that sense. So just some things to look forward to. Yeah, but, sure. Yeah. Outside of that, um, thank you for tuning in. Uh, make sure you take care of yourself. Uh, this was a pretty this was a severe case. This was very gory. So um, take care of yourself and we hope to see you again. Um, thank you for listening and bye. Bye. <laughs> Say bye, Brynn. Goodbye. <sighs>